So if you happen to, to be at New Horizons on Wednesday, then you heard my mom talk about her nativities. Um, she has over 300 nativities, but she shared about one that was very precious to her. That's one that stays out year round. And it was made by my dad and their dear friend, Phil. And to make this nativity, uh, they cut out each character and then they cut those characters into pieces and then they sanded them and stained them and re-glued them together to make the nativity and I forgot my computer and so I'm going to show you this picture that you're not going to be able to see and then Sandy's going to send it out in the email this week so if you want to see it today like immediately then find me afterwards it's on my iPad but otherwise you can you'll be able to see it closer when Sandy sends the email. Sorry about that. It was an odd day at school, so I didn't need my computer, so I just didn't even think about it. Um, but what she talked about, what my mom talked about with this particular nativity, and one of the reasons that she just loved this nativity, is that when she looks at it, it reminds her of the friends that made it, but it also made her think about what she called sandpaper friends, which um, Linda and Phil were sandpaper friends to them, uh, to my parents as well. Um, but those are those friends that are willing to rub you and to help you smooth your rough edges. They are willing to point out when your dress is caught in your pantyhose, but also when you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. They are the friends that speak into your life when you are sinning and help you get back on the right track. They stand by you in the good and the bad, walking with you through thick and thin. They are the ones that are instrumental in making you more Christ-like. And so as we think about these sandpaper friends and think about them in your own life, we're going to look at, at Mordecai and how he was being sandpaper, uh, in essence, to Esther this week. And so as, you th as, as we look at Mordecai's statements... Think about, um, think about some sandpaper person in your life, somebody who, who points you back to God in your fear and your doubt and your sin, and then take time this week to just be thankful for them. So we have a short passage today because we're only looking at three verses from the book of Esther, but it has so much to say. So what, are, what happened last week in our passage last week in those first 11 verses of chapter 4? Mordecai, he was more than sad. He was, he was mourning. He was distraught. And, and so were all the Jews. And why were they distraught? Yeah, Haman put out that edict that they were all going to be killed. And it wasn't just, you know, a few in the city of Susa. It was every single Jew in the empire. And so they were grieving, and Mordecai had on sackcloth and ashes, and he was wailing bitterly. So Esther hears about it, and what does she do? Her, tries to fix it. She tries to fix it. She gives him new clothes to wear. It's like, quiet down, just put these on. And Mordecai sends a reply and an exp explanation along with a command. And so he, he tells her, you you need to go in and talk to the king about this. You need, to, you need to see what you can do to save our people. And Esther replies by saying what? He didn't ask for me. He didn't ask for me. 
And he hasn't asked for me for how long? 30 days. days. It had been 30 days. And so we may think, um, so up until verse 13, Esther had only weighed the consequences of approaching the king, and she hadn't considered the consequences yet of refusing to approach the king. And so we may think that Mordecai's exhortation to Esther has little relevance to us, but I want, I want us to look at what he says today and how we can put that with us or how we can apply that to us. So um, Esther 4, verses 12 through 14. And so what are, there are three main things that Mordecai tells Esther. And so what are the three main things she, he says to her? Nothing, don't think you will escape yeah, she's not exempt from the edict. Just because she lives in the palace doesn't mean she's not Jewish and won't be killed. What else? Relief will come to the Jews. The, the, God is going to preserve his people. And the final one. She'll, yeah, she'll die. But what does he tell her about her place? She might not be there by accident. Right? Yeah, for such a time as this. And so here's, here's Mordecai. And, and, and he's the father figure, but he's also acting as a sandpaper person, right? A, a sandpaper friend to Esther, pushing her, presenting to her the cold, hard truth. And it makes us think about Proverbs 27, verse 6. I gave that to somebody. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? We think about this passage of, of what he just said. It's like, you're going to die too. What are you thinking? And then it's, do something because you're there, right? He's, I mean, you hear this because remember, this is through a messenger. It's not even a face-to-face conversation. They can't get the tone. They can't get the body language. They can't see the face. You get this message back and it can... It can hurt, right? But Proverbs reminds us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So Mordecai has presented Esther with the cold, hard truth. He was being honest with her in order to push her and to smooth out her rough edges. He was being sandpaper for her. And we haven't even scratched the surface of these verses, but we can already walk out with the door with an application to live out. Because sandpaper people are important. We need them in our lives, and we need to be them to other people. We don't need to be them to everybody. Like, you've got to have a relationship to be able to, to rub that close. But 
Uh, the Landon Dowden, he says, to remain silent when those we care for are chained to sin is never loving. And I'm, I'm teaching school this year, so at home we've had many conversations about teaching and about appreciating our teachers. And, and I was just telling Ray the other day about remembering a former student of my mother's. She was a high school math teacher before she retired. Um, and, and she laid this student of hers, later became my basketball coach. And so we were, I was talking on the bus with this, this coach one day. Um, we were going to a game. And she asked me if I remembered seeing her sitting in my mom's classroom after school when I would come. We went to a K through 12 public school, but it was K through 12. And so when I was in elementary school, I would just walk over to her classroom at the end of the day. And she, she asked me if I remembered seeing her in there. And I, I told her I, you know, I didn't keep up with which students were where and who. And, and um, she told me that that she was usually in trouble at the time, and it was usually a detention that she was serving when she was after school with, with my mom. But, that, but she wanted me to know just how much she could look back and appreciate that discipline as a high school senior, because it truly did help to guide her to where she was that day, which was a teacher and a coach. It's important to have people that you love enough to speak truth into, into your life, that can call you out when you are wrong, that can come alongside you and hold you accountable, that will step on your toes because they love you. And it is important to, to love people enough that we are willing to do it for them as well. One of the, I mean, one of the things, if you are lacking this in your life right now, is, is talk to Elizabeth about a grow group because that is the, the goal or, or one of the primary goals of grow groups is accountability. And it is to be able to share, I am struggling with this, and to have those people holding you accountable to that, to have them asking you about it, to have them saying, I saw you do this, and I, I really think you need to be really careful on that. That's part of, the, part of the purpose of grow groups. And so if you are not in one and you do not have these sandpaper friends or that type of a relationship in your life, I would encourage you to, to think about that. And so that's the, the overall, what, uh, what Mordecai tells Esther overall. But Part of this passage, I mean, it's, it's the for such a time as this passage. You've all heard that before, right? But that's not the first thing he tells her. So we're going to get there, but we're going to start at the beginning of, of Mordecai's reply. Mordecai wanted to make sure that Esther fully understood everything he had sent in his previous message. He wanted to make sure that she knew there were no exceptions or, no exempt, or exemptions. And at this point in our story, Esther will die alongside everyone else, crown or no crown, scepter or no scepter. The palace walls protected her from hearing about the edict, but it would not protect her from it being carried out. And so whether she died because she went into the king and he didn't hold out his golden scepter, or she died just under a year later because she was Jewish, the result was exactly the same. 
She could not hide her nationality forever, especially as Mordecai had just revealed his own so plainly. So Mordecai knew that Esther's life was in danger whether she acted or not. But he also knew that regardless of Esther's actions, Mordecai was confident that God's people would be preserved. He knew many would die. Don't get me wrong. It was still a very scary time, still a very heavy burden to carry. But he knew that they were God's chosen people and they would not be, um, they would not be annihilated in the way that Haman, um, Haman wanted. If Esther faltered, it would be to her detriment, but the Jews as a nation would still be delivered. And now we've looked at this story deeply up to this point, and we will finish it out, but have we seen in the first almost four chapters of Esther, have we seen somewhere else for the help to come from? We haven't heard about God. We haven't heard this. I mean, our first mention of the other Jews was when they were all grieving, right? So we haven't seen anywhere else. It, it would have taken a mighty work by the hand of God. Oh, absolutely. And that's what Mordecai is saying. He says it will come from another place. Um, it, and and uh, let me find for if if you keep silent at this time relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish he's, so he's he's saying this another place the blue blue letter bible says that word means that could either be a specific or a general location and so does Mordecai's, this is a, a what, you, what do you think question, not a rhetorical question. So does Mordecai's another place mean God would just sweep in and do something? If God is sovereign, he would find someone to replace Esther. Yeah. So yes, God would, I don't know, I want to say would sweep in, but he would come, he's not going to let his Right. We, we may not have seen God in the, or seen his name or seen reference, but, but Mordecai is, now some scholars will say that Mordecai has not shown a strong faith up to this point, and so there's nothing to imply that he's saying God will directly take care of this. But um, there are many little evidences, little glimmers throughout the whole book, including these very verses that indicate that he knows that it, the another place would be God. This whole, this whole passage, well, his whole message back to her, verses 13 and 14, he is saying, God's going to do this. So I have a story for, for you. Many of you have heard it before, or at least pieces of it before. But we're going to look at it with respect to God's plan being carried out with or without us. 
because, because here it's for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, right? He's saying it's God, not Esther, that's going to take care of this. And so while, uh, while Ray and I were dating, this was years and years and years ago, God made it clear to me that I was to be a pastor's wife, that I was to come alongside my husband and be a support for him in ministry. And then we both prayed, prayed Ray through seminary, and we knew that God was leading him to bivocational ministry. So he would work part-time at a church, but he would also have another job outside of the church. And so Ray worked a full-time job while he took classes part-time at, at Southern Seminary so that he could have work experience to be able to do this calling that God had, had given us. So that meant part-time seminary student meant he ended up on the six-year plan for his degree. But he worked for a company. At the time, it was called Summit Energy. It has now been bought by a bigger company and is part of Schneider Electric. But he learned all about energy, all about the, the energy industry. And well over pro probably a year and a half, two years before graduation, Ray came to me and he said, God is showing me that we need to look at the Northeast U.S. for a church. And so he, Ray told me that energy jobs were prevalent in this area, that, um, that he'd be able to find a, the outside job and that there were a whole lot of churches, um, particularly small churches, that were in need of, of bivocational pastors. Now, this was probably 2007 at the time. Andrew was about a year old. I thought he was out of his mind. Kentucky was my home, right? I had gone to college 100 miles from where I grew up, but I was so homesick that first semester that I packed every single item in my dorm room. I didn't tell anybody that I was not going back in January. I was going to stay home and I was going to just figure something else out that first Christmas break. I mean, I had, I had enrolled and had picked my classes and all that stuff, but I was not going back. Um, and I did end up going back. Um, that's another story in itself, but here's me thinking, you want to go that far away? Are you, are you kidding me? We've got a one-year-old. How am I supposed to do this without my parents? Like, so um, I told him I would pray about it. I would see what God was telling me. But in the moment, I was confident that we were staying put, or at least close, right? But God. So I prayed diligently for a week or two. I remember looking at maps. I remember working through driving distances. Um, I knew that there were, I worked for the Army Corps of Engineers at the time, and I knew that there were offices in Baltimore and in Pittsburgh, um, and, and I had worked closely with some people from both of those offices in doing my job. And so I was like, well, I, I could, we could go and do, do something with that. And, um, but one, one thing just kept coming into my mind over and over and over and it was I can go as far as Pennsylvania and that was the phrase that kept going through my head those for the, for the, all that time I was praying 
Now I thought at the time that meant Pittsburgh because there was an office in Pittsburgh and, and I had worked with Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh is only six hours away from my parents and not nine and a half hours away from my parents. Um, and so I went and I told Ray exactly what I had been hearing repeated in my head was I can go as far as Pennsylvania. And that was it. We were still a year and a half or so away from graduation. Hadn't thought about sending out resumes at all. Um, but within the next year, within the next six months or so really, um, so it was a full year before Ray graduated from seminary, his non-Christian boss called Ray into his office. And, the, and they had, Ray had been very open, I'm here for seminary and then I'm gonna move somewhere else and I'm, I'm gonna find another job. And so his, and his, his boss, his direct boss was not a Christian. The company was owned by a Christian man who actually specifically advertised jobs at the seminary to have, have Christian men and women, but uh, the seminary ones were mostly men that would, would work for them. Um, and so he, and they knew that those people were there temporarily, but they knew they were hard workers. And, and so his boss calls him into his office. His boss's name is Ron, and they had a really good conversation and Ron told Ray, you have a job with us wherever it is that you go for ministry. They were gonna have him work remotely from home anywhere in the country that God took us. Now this was a huge blessing because we knew that we would not have to search for three jobs because it would be my job, his, his uh, full-time job and the church job, but that we would only need to do two jobs and that I was an engineer and I could find a job somewhere. Um, and so, of course, when we started sending out resumes about six months later, of course, we knew that God was leading us to Pennsylvania and he sent all of his ministry resumes to churches in Pennsylvania, right? No. We knew where God had clearly told us that we were going but we didn't send a single resume to the entire state of Pennsylvania. He applied to churches in Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, Tennessee. He applied to one as far away as Montana. And the Montana church was very interested in Ray. They did phone calls, they listened to, to sermon tapes because at the time it was still on tapes. And in the end, we had a video conference with them which that in itself was an ordeal 15 years ago, just so you know. I guess it wasn't quite 15 years ago, 14 years ago. This church sounded amazing. They had a solid kids ministry, and by this time I had two kids to think about. They were a healthy church, they were a growing church, they had volunteers, outreaches, an attitude of people being on fire for God. But in essence, they wanted Ray to work full-time for the church with part-time pay and have me find a job in Montana to support the family full-time because they really didn't want him to have a second job. We were excited about where that church was going and where God was taking that church. But I woke up the morning after that interview and I told Ray it was not the right fit. 
that that was not where God had called him because he was supposed to have two jobs, that he was supposed to be able to work and reach people at his job as well as at, at, uh, through the church ministry. He was a little more excited about those possibilities. He said we needed to wait and keep praying about it. And so that was that morning. That night after we get home from work, we both come home and there was a letter in the mailbox from a church in Pennsylvania. And the letter said, we are interested in calling you to be the pastor at Bethel Baptist Church in Mannheim. And they asked if he would be interested in it and, and to call. God then convinced Ray that Montana was not the right church and to start a conversation with Bethel. So a couple of days later, he called, not expecting much. He'd never heard of the church. Their website presence was um, slim to none. It was there, but it was basically non-existent. Um, we found out that well, he, so he did a, a phone interview. So he called, they set up a phone interview. He did a phone interview. Then we did a phone interview together. Uh, we prayed through it. We visited. We fell in love with the people. And we found out that a resume that Ray had sent to a church association, we were part of the Southern Baptists when we were in Louisville, and they have different uh, associations, and they have these, these people called director of missions that... Um, help each association, each local area of churches um, with different things. And so he had sent resumes to all the directors of missions in Kentucky so that they could send them to their churches in their area if they knew of openings. Um, so we found out that one of these directors of missions had, had um, just been talking to a longtime friend um, who happened to be the interim pastor at the little church in Mannheim, at Bethel. And they were just talking, and, and the, the DOM, he said, you know, I just got this resume I think you should take a look at. And so he sends it to, to Paul up here in Pennsylvania. There were a lot of just-so-happens that happened here in order to get us to where God told us that he was sending us two years before. And we got in the way of God's calling in our life. We didn't look at churches in Pennsylvania. We can make excuses and justifications for why we didn't look. We can blow it off because it worked out and here we are. But the reality is we got in the way instead of walking in obedience to God's calling. And God had to work around us and in spite of us instead of through us. Mordecai knew that the survival of the Jews was not dependent on his actions or on Esther's. He knew that God was bigger than either of them and that his plan was going to happen just because he was God. That is the heart of the book of Esther. That is the heart of but God. Esther isn't, the book of Esther isn't about, perhaps you were here for such a time of the, as this, because that puts it about Esther. But it's about God. 
God's plan does not depend on us. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. We are mere mortals. We do not have the power of God. And if God wants it to happen, he will make it happen with or without you. But God wants to use us. He wants us to obey and to follow so that we can bring him glory. So Genesis 50, verse 20, that's our theme verse for the year, um, for, for women's ministry. But it's, it fits perfectly right here today. And so that was from the story of Joseph, when his brothers wanted to kill him, ended up selling him into slavery. He goes to Egypt. Long story short, he ends up saving Israel. He ends up saving his brothers because God. Not what the brothers did, not anything that Joseph did, it was God. Now, I've just made it sound like the for such a time as this is all bad. That's not what I'm saying at all. Because the end of verse 14 is the moment that we see Mordecai recognize that the kidnapping and the captivity of Esther was not just a random tragedy. He is seeing that there was a higher purpose in all of this. Mordecai is reminding Esther of this as well. And he is saying that her position of royalty is a matter requiring stewardship. It's like if you've seen Spider-Man when Uncle Ben gives the advice to Peter. He says, with great power comes great responsibility. Right? I have a boy who's very into comics, so I'm sorry. If you don't have a boy who's very into comics, that probably just completely missed you. But it's true, that statement is still, with great power comes great responsibility. There is still a place for this passage. We just have to be careful when we say for such a time as this that we are not taking credit for God's role in the situation. So the question we should be asking is this. What work has God especially especially for me to do because he has allowed me to be alive at this particular time in this particular place? It's about God, not about us. God was intentional with the lives of Mordecai and Esther, and he is no less intentional with each of our lives. Um, Acts 17, 26. So that, uh, Acts 17, 26. So that verse was a verse I grew up hearing all the time. Um, My hometown is Berea, Kentucky. They had a college or have a college, Berea College. And Acts 17, 26 is the, um, is sort of the the life verse for the college. Um, It was established as a um, 
to be an interracial college. It was, it was very um, ahead of its time in that regard. And so they focused on the God has made one blood, you know, made from one blood all the nations of the earth. But then that verse goes on to say, he established the times and the places, he established the borders, he's in it. He has put you here at this place and this time with some work for you to do. And it is our job to find that. Uh, Landon Dowden says, there is not another time period in which you should have lived. The places where we are, the positions we hold, and the people by whom we are surrounded have been entrusted to us for the purpose of gospel advancements. We are here in this place and this time for a purpose. And so are you going to allow God to use you for his plans or will you be forcing God to work around you? We are dismissed to our small groups.